On this episode of Doctor Who's That, we talk about body shaming Daleks, whacking sticks, and Karl Marxstable. To Doctor Who's That. This is your Doctor Who expert host, Sean Gleason. Joining me as always, we have Bay. Dizzy. Dizzy. And we have Andy. Why? <laughs> <laughs> That's what we ask ourselves every episode, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> so today we are talking about the evil of the Daleks. We already know the power of the Daleks. It's time to become acquainted with the evil. Right. Such an imaginative episode title. (laughs) Every episode title of the classic series from now on featuring the Daleks will be something of the Daleks. Okay. We've got a theme going then. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert, uh, Bay. They're uh, not dead. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I I kind of guessed that. I was like... It's it's pretty clear that this is supposed to be the final Daleks episode. I'm like, yeah, that didn't take. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see, you know, when they'll return next. We'll see. Uh, so this story aired in May of 1967 to the beginning of July of 1967. Its working title was even more imaginatively... The Daleks. Boo. We've had this one before. <laughs> yes. With our State of the Hoonian, this is the final story of season four, though the production block includes the next story as well, so the first story of season five. Right, in typical fashion. But this one really goes out on a bang. Yes. <laughs> Very much so. According to production documents at the time, They had 2,570 pounds per episode. They were allowed no more than five breaks in recording. And there was supposed to be a five-second fade to black in the middle of each episode for foreign commercials. Is this the first time they've done that then? Uh, I think that we've had that before as well. But this is just, you know, from the production documents that we have from this episode. It's just interesting to start seeing, you know, like that influence a little bit more in the production, though. Considerations for foreign markets. Yeah, because they are still, you know, selling and sending these overseas, which is why we have anything that survives. So right around this time, Jerry Davis accepted a new job on a high-profile new show called The First Lady, a now almost entirely missing show. Only one of its 39 episodes exists. Mm. Uh, Davis would end up working as the script editor for the first three episodes of this story, after which Peter Bryant took over the role. 
And Bryant was given Victor Pemberton, who he talked about back during the moon base, as his assistant. Meanwhile, the BBC, urged on by Lloyd's desire to get rid of them, agreed to Terry Nation's request to allow him to take the rice to the Daleks and try to sell his Dalek TV show in America. Oh, they tried to make it, make to have a go here. He had tried to sell it to the BBC, and they ended up deciding not to go with it. So mm. he was taking it, I believe it was uh, to NBC, was his next stop to try to sell it here. I feel like that's a harder sell. Yeah, because <laughs> a lot of people in America have no idea what a Dalek is. Yeah, I'm just imagining like some bizarre parallel to the office where like (laughs) Daleks are all of a sudden you know they have to make it really like awkward and loud for the American audiences to like it nobody really identifies with the Daleks for the first few seasons but you know gradually the Daleks just have shotguns instead of you know ray guns right or it's like a detective show (laughs) where is the little girl (laughs) sorry I have one more question Donk, donk. (laughs) (laughs) That one went off the rails. (laughs) So this this story was designed to be their big send-off, as Bay noted. Um, Prescient as always, Sidney Newman urged them to include a final scene indicating that the Daleks may yet survive, just in case they decide (laughs) to bring them back someday. Someday. So production assistant Timothy Combe came up with the idea of ending the story with the light coming back on on a single Dalek. It's a good idea. Yeah, but the joke's on them. That was a human Dalek. (laughs) Dizzy. They asked Nation to write it, but of course he was busy. So they turned to David Whitaker again like they had with the previous Dalek story. In Whitaker's original proposal, rather than going to the 1860s, Waterfield would take the Doctor and friends to 20,000 BC, where the Daleks were trying to find the essence of humanity in a caveman named Og. Of course. And they planned to use this essence to wipe out all future generations of humanity. That would be a pretty interesting story, but why even bother trying to find the essence? Just kill Og. Yeah. (laughs) Exterminate Og. Kill Adam and Eve. Og and Eve. Whitaker (laughs) (laughs) Whitaker had also written a number of Doctor Who comic strips for TV comic. In those strips... He had featured a giant Dalek emperor, and he decided to bring that into the show for this story. I was very excited to see that. I thought that was very cool. We don't actually see him because this those episodes are animated, so it looks very good. It'd be interesting to see him in real life. <laughs> um, maybe one day. Maybe, maybe. I'm sure there's some production stills of him out there. But yeah. So uh, the location filming for this was done at Grimm's Dyke, a London mansion which had once belonged to Gilbert of the operatic duo. Oh, no joke. <laughs> so uh, there were four previously made Dalek props that they still had that were created by Shockcraft models. And a fifth one was made by the BBC props department for this story. 
though its design was noticeably narrower than the other four Daleks. Hmm. So again, we don't really get a sense of that from the animation, but I'm sure you'd notice that if you saw the actual episode. I did notice that there was differentiation between like black Daleks and whatever the other base color is, silver or something. I I imagine you could have more easily hidden that based on, you know, some of the other changes that we were seeing to the models. Plus there was the that giant Dalek Emperor, which is like different enough. Yeah. And um I really missed my chance to like say something about I am the very model of a modern Dalek Emperor. <laughs> <laughs> the story when it aired did suffer a number of broadcast delays. The first and last episodes were pushed back by the soccer finals and by Wimbledon, respectively. Mm. And when they aired these stories, someone had forgotten to put Terry Nation's name in the credits throughout the entire story. So this required an announcer to issue an apology on air over the ending (laughs) credits of each episode. (laughs) Yeah, they couldn't get rid of Terry Nation quick enough. (laughs) so uh some of our important people our director is derek martinus who we've seen before writer david whitaker and music was by dudley simpson so all people who we've seen before did nation have anything to do with the writing of this one no okay yeah it showed but yeah i had i had to wonder i I wanted to give him some credit where it was due but it wasn't (laughs) So, with our cast members, our big-named actor in this story was Marius Goring, who played Theodore Maxtable. It was a bit of a shame that we don't get a lot of live episodes with that guy, because I would have liked to see his facial expressions (laughs) a little bit more. And, I mean, like, he comes off as a lot more unkempt than he did. In the animation, yeah. <laughs> like he just looks like Karl Marx in the animation. I was referring to him throughout the whole time we were watching it as Karl Marxable. He's he's very fuzzy. Yes, he's got he's 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 oh oh damn it! Who's this? Who's the Gloom Gold? The uh, Scrooge McDuck's and oh Glom Gold, <laughs> Glom yeah, Gold, yeah. yeah. You know that's that's how I kept thinking of him because that's <laughs> he was just so obsessed. <laughs> He loves gold. I love gold. (laughs) It's so cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the whole time. I just say, come on, dude. Like, really? Like, the Philosopher's Stone is what what you're doing all this for? Yeah, we're going to kill all of humanity. Yeah, but gold, though? You know, like... Not just... I mean, we'll we'll talk about it a little bit more, but (laughs) not just all of humanity right now. All of humanity through time forever. Yes. In every dimension. But gold, though. (laughs) Yeah. But gold. I need gold. You won't be able to trade it with anybody for anything. It's going to make me so... It's going to make... Give me such influence. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) With who? The Daleks? They're all that's left. What was your plan to, like, surprise and beat back the Daleks with all of your new gold? I'm sorry. that's, That's so stupid. Anyway. It's not a good plan. Greed, man. It's Greed. A, <laughs> yeah, but it's like at some point you got to recognize this is like, I, I, 
can't spend it, right? Now it's just heavy <laughs> yellow metal, right? Like, sorry. I love gold. <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> so Marius Goring had been a well, well-known actor since he first started acting at age 15 in the late 20s. Uh, he was in tons of theater, tons of movies and television, among his bigger roles that we might know him for were uh, the movie A Matter of Life and Death and The Red Shoes. Uh, he was on some episodes of Hammer's House of Horror um, and the star of a British TV show in the 70s called The Expert. Oh, I mean, Hammer is pretty famous. Yeah. I'm sure if you looked on IMDb, you'd see plenty of other roles that you've probably at least seen him in. A couple guest spots on In Living Color. <laughs> <laughs> and um, apparently, originally, an actress named Denise Buckley had been hired for the role of Victoria. And just as a note, the character was named after Jerry Davis's daughter. Um, when it was decided just days after her casting that Victoria was going to be the new companion... The production team decided to recast her and asked the more experienced Deborah Watling to take the role. Oh. Deborah Watling was a very experienced child actor, and her family were friends with Patrick Trowden's families. A little nepotism. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I, I have very high hopes because all of the best companions have been named Vicky. <laughs> They also considered giving the role of Victoria to Joe Robottom, but she ended up being cast as Molly Dawson in this story instead. That's the... The, the, the maid. maid. Yeah. And there was actually a bit of a toss-up between which of those two characters they were going to make the new companion. Oh, wrong choice. <laughs> Like, Robottom would end up having various roles and things until the 90s, and so would Buckley would end up having roles throughout the 60s and 70s, so both had pretty decent careers after this. And Buckley ended up getting paid in full for the story, even though she never did a day of recording. <laughs> oh. British TV, the British film industry and television industry seems a lot nicer than ours. <laughs> Or at least they had, like, labor laws. <laughs> yes. So, our new companion, Deborah Watling, uh, she was born in 1948. Her parents were actors, with her father being Jack Watling, an actor with plenty of credits, including a couple stories coming up next season for Doctor Who. And this would apparently cause, cause Deborah some problems, as she couldn't help but break into giggles when she saw him in his old age makeup for one of these stories. So we know she sticks around for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and when she was a child, she would appear in the background of some of her father's films starting at the age of three. Like as an extra. <laughs> yep. And then she'd have other roles as well. Like she had a regular role in the TV show The Invisible Man in 1958. And she was in Alice in Wonderland in 1965, uh, which is actually where uh, Jerry Davis had seen her, which made him think of her for this role. And apparently she had not actually auditioned for the role. Davis was just interested in casting her. 
Like, she had also previously been considered for the role of Polly. And she says she doesn't remember auditioning for that one either. (laughs) (laughs) Just the power of her ability, huh? Yep. Tragedy struck on her first day of filming when 19-year-old Deborah Watling woke up, looked in the mirror, and found a giant red spot on her face. A story that she tells in her autobiography. What was it, MRSA? (laughs) Jupiter. (laughs) Is that like a human cordyceps? So it's just... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Yep. The uh, missing episodes, six of our seven episodes for this story are missing. Um, The first six were wiped in August of 1968, and the last remaining one was wiped in September 1969. So crazy to me. Yeah. Only a teller recording of episode two still survives, which turned up in 1987. I'd be surprised if this isn't out there somewhere. I mean... It almost certainly keep saying that, but <laughs> well, it. But they're still finding them all the time. Well, the last time they found some were like nine years ago. At this point, yeah, but. it's been a, it's been a minute. But that time they found like pretty much two full stories. So okay, both of all which right. are next season. Well, I just um. This serial almost certainly looks more impressive now, in animated form. Than it did at the time, almost certainly. I still oh, would have yeah. liked to have seen like people's facial expressions, right? Actual like performance, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't think we get anything at all with uh, what's his name, Camel. Yeah, no Camel. Like he's not on. He's not on screen at all. I mean, he's animated, of course. Which one's that? Oh, uh, he's the uh, mute, muscle bound. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is yeah. he Arab? I wanted to say he's Arab. He's, he's wearing a fez. Yeah. yeah, he's Turkish. Turkish. Okay. I mean, you're right, of course, but like the I will say that like when the second like episode came on and it was like not animated anymore, I was like, aw. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. Like, especially when we get to the climax, I'm like, this is the coolest. <laughs> it probably did not look anywhere near as cool and in- <laughs> in live television but so while the story was being made the special effects team made a behind the scenes film called the last dalek and i guess some or parts or all of it survived because it was later used to reconstruct that final climax so wait they wiped that too didn't they that i mean if if it was reconstructed at least some of it has to survive if it was used to make reconstructions that would be pretty cool to like try and try and see yeah yeah so when loose cannon did their reconstruction based on this they went to the house that it was filmed at with two full-size daleks and they filmed some inserts there and they had the owner's wife stand in for victoria well, just for like the blocking and yep. stuff, it's very cool. <laughs> I like that. So you know, they they're usual. They occasionally do those filmed insert bits that they have. So yeah, that's uh, they they <laughs> went to the house and filmed it there. Wow, they've certainly gotten better <laughs> <laughs> at the filmed inserts stuff. <laughs> I will say that. So let us move on to talking about the evil of the Daleks. Uh, It starts shortly after the end of the last story. 
The doctor and Jamie are chasing a truck that's hauling away the TARDIS through the airport. <laughs> it had been a minute since we saw the last one. And, you know, we had our um, special episode that we had recorded <laughs> in between. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, they're still at the airport in, like, quote, modern times. Yes. It was a little disorienting, to say the least. I thought it was charmingly serial. However, like, it's I don't think it's ever going to be long enough <laughs> from mm. uh, from that last episode, which traumatized <laughs> both me yeah. and my relationship. We can't ever get further away from it, yeah. I, uh, I feel so bad. Like, I, I, <laughs> I asked my girlfriend if she wanted to watch a little bit of this, and she was like... I'm, you know, I'm busy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, f- I feel kind of like Icarus, you know, like we built this thing up and then. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I yeah, the, the airport. Um, I thought that was kind of <laughs> cool. But like, of course, they've got to like get out of there immediately. Right. Yeah, because they just shed two companions. Well, they, yeah, there's Bye. that. And then like they got to hightail it into the next story. Like I do find myself uh, wondering if this whole like time travel business was just like the original plan and so they're like all right let's just how how, like come up with i don't know three paragraphs that can get them from the airport to the 1800s right (laughs) uh we could probably squeeze an episode out of that one like is it ever explained (laughs) like why we have to go back and forth in time yeah it's 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 very odd i was talking with shawnee about this earlier too i guess more just forth just right. just to just to talk about like a little bit of the the conceit in this episode the tardis is hauled away on the back of a truck if i remember yep and we do have a time travel element that comes up here in this story and i think the next story or sorry this uh, episode in the next episode but it's not enabled by the tardis and in fact when our heroes travel through time they do so without the TARDIS. It's only at the last minute that the TARDIS has been brought off screen to where they are with no explanation. That's a very lucky thing, by the way. <laughs> well, you know, there's that. The Daleks are very smart. Yeah, they're, they're pretty crafty. <laughs> but uh, Is this, would you call this, Shahani, would you call this a Dardis by any chance? we know they can do it it's just like why but this brings me back to what i was saying before we actually hit record which was trying to place this in the dalek timeline is just a real mess yeah and like we said before we started recording don't even bother yeah no (laughs) it makes no sense (laughs) it's like you can i'm I'm sure, I, I am certain that if you trawl through Usenet, you will find a lovingly rendered Dalek timeline with, you know, many wibbly wobblies on it and all that. But, well, uh, the, it's, it's pretty clear that it's after they've met once, so it's definitely got to be past our, our second story of all time. Yeah, they got his audition you know? headshot. They had to get it from right. somewhere. But... I'm trying to recall if we've actually... Did we have a Dalek episode with Troughton? Yes, his first. But it's the first one for Jamie, for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he doesn't even... Yeah, he's... He, he's. That's right. The Daleks... The Dal- He'd seen the Daleks and they recognized him and he immediately was like, don't trust this thing. We got to get out of here. Yeah. Um, that was a great performance, too. That was... Yeah. Um, another reason why I wish we actually had some live action in here. 
But yeah, I, I don't know. It's that episode also could be out of sequence with what we've seen. Yeah. Uh, no. they, they, <laughs> they certainly have to have met the doctor before because they're drawing on his expertise. Well, and of all, I mean, like, it's like as the, you know, great, you know, doctor enemy, right? Like the, 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 the frenemy relation, not, well, no, just enemy, but like, you know, the, they're drawn, you know, kind of drawn to him in well, a they're, way. They're nemeses. Yeah. 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 So it makes sense. I just, I'm still trying to like, so basically, right. We go from the airport and then end up with an antiques dealer. Yep. And there's like a brief hint of a mystery where they're like, oh, this stuff is real, but it's well, new, but it's not. Right. And then like, and of course we hang out in the sixties for like five seconds, but then it's just all <laughs> yeah, <laughs> historical. It's so weird. Shawnee, of course, had seen this one before. Andy, like, how did you, what did you think of this first episode? I, I really did enjoy the mystery of it. It was pretty clear there was some something strange going on, but it was kind of hard to wrap your head around exactly what was happening for for a while. Yeah, I mean, have you heard of the term, like, I mean, I'm sure you have, the like the refrigerator moment, right? Mm-hmm. Right, where later you're just kind of like, what? Like, in this whole serial to me was like a refrigerator moment, and then I just, then I was like, eh. Right. Like, I just don't care. But like I because like I I agree. I I thought there was like it was dripping with mystery. It's like, who is this guy? Like, is he another kind of alien? Is he is is this, you know, because they you know, there were a couple of times where they referred to like the master of the house. And I was like, oh, shit, I didn't know it happened. Yes. Uh, You your mind went to the exact same place mine did, because I have heard of a character named the master, but I did not. I don't know anything about him. Right. So I was like, oh, this is the master. Yeah, I was excited too. So, uh, yes, to, to sum it up, um, I liked it. I uh, was briefly disappointed later when I was like, wait a minute. Like, that didn't really go anywhere. Like, really, <laughs> there was all that fun mystery and kind of like that skulking around spy stuff, meeting at the coffee house, you know, going to yeah. surprise them stuff. And it was just like basically the fact that this guy has been like moonlighting as a as a as a future antique dealer uh, is never really kind of brought to fruition, I guess you could say. But the time uh, the time hop conceit like very quickly like fades into the background of the story like it was just a means to get the doctor and his companion to 1866. Right. Which is kind of a bummer. (laughs) It is and it isn't. I mean, well, you know, it's there to set up the, like, it sets up the mystery of the in the first episode. You know, yeah, I did like the mystery in the first episode. But it's like, who is this weird fancy right. man who you know right. seems to be orchestrating all this? What right. never his you deal? mind that it like you pretty know, doesn't clearly go you know like not from this time. I mean, is almost comedic. It's like you ask too many questions. I don't pay to pay you to ask questions. Yeah. That and like I thought that I thought it was a nice touch when he didn't know what um, okay meant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, you know the guys. Yeah. So that was pretty cool actually. But like that's when I was like, okay, well he's definitely from the past or whatever. But like it's still just I I I do I get it right. There was a lot of there was actually a lot of cool stuff going on, and you can argue that of course, like and as we you know we kind of discover like he and Santa Claus 
are like time travel <laughs> researchers, right? Or whatever. <laughs> and we kind of do get into that. And I guess there's just a lot of untapped potential that we yeah. kind of left on the floor, especially like that, like oh, that was, it was such a good mad scientist slowly revealing, you know, the process of his research thing, you know, like, doc, I don't know, like, you know, Island of Dr. Moreau or something like that, where he's, he's right. like slowly kind of meeting out. And then it was like, and we hit a wall and then eventually we thought of this. And, you know, they're kind of describing the whole leading up to the like, you know, powers better left untouched. Right. Situation. And then his explanation is stupid and doesn't work. Yeah. Basically, the, the way that the time travel works here is that Waterfield, who's our fancy man, and his partner... Santa Claus. Santa Claus, Theodore Maxtable, <laughs> is... Um, they're, they're, <laughs> they're working on time travel. And the way that they do it is basically through mirrors, and it's alchemy. It's right. all... It's it's all based on alchemical principles, principles, and yeah, it's you know basically something that um, the writer David Whitaker was obsessed with, the whole concept of oh. alchemy. It's pretty clear when we start to get into mesmerism. <laughs> yes, it's like listening to Dan Aykroyd talk. It's like, oh yes. shit, you believe this. My favorite part is when they bust ghosts in Act 3. Uh, We should probably backtrack. (laughs) Should we? But I mean, like... uh, (laughs) I mean, like, yeah, we we end up in the past. But I I just want to say one more thing. Since I was a child, there was this movie that came out when I was a child. And it's called The Watcher in the Woods. Have you guys seen that? Have you ever seen this movie? This is very familiar to me. Okay. Yeah, I haven't. But I've heard a, of it, but I haven't. I've heard of right. it. For Everybody sure. listening needs to watch it if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's so first, like, and the reason I mention it is because it's British, and it takes place in a big house for the most part in the countryside. It's scary as balls, <laughs> and it, like it's it's this bizarre like seventies Disney movie. It was a Disney movie back when Disney like was making like you know like the black hole and weird shit like that. Yeah, and it's terrifying. And it but it also has this undercurrent of like you know people messing with stuff and it going like very very wrong. And like I right, I was right. just oh, I was really really. Hoping we got to make more hay out of that. Like, that is something I'm absolutely obsessed with, right? It's like cosmic horror and whatnot. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, we, 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 you know. Oh, I thought you meant, like, messing with powers we don't yeah. understand. Yeah, yeah, and, that's what and I mean. Causing, like, some, some kind of cataclysm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's 100% my jam. And we do kind of touch on it, but yeah. You must have been a big fan of Jurassic Park, Westworld, and all the like. Not necessarily, yeah. But we it, can, it's got to be a little crazier, huh? Yes, we 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 will dis- we can discuss this as we proceed. I one hundred percent will bring it back. Sure. All right. So yeah, we go through. Basically, the doctor talks to a few people, a mechanic. Who's, you know, there's plenty wrong with, like, his clothes are the wrong size and so on. So the doctor figures, okay, this guy isn't who he appears to be. So they follow him. This is Kennedy, right? This is, the mechanic is Hall, who leads oh, them to Hall. Kennedy. Okay, yeah, he... So I, was, I remember thinking, like, okay, so 
there's two groups of aliens at the airport, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> but no. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did wonder if they were like time lords or something. And Kennedy and Hall all seem to work for our guy Edward Waterfield. While the doctor's investigating, he comes across a matchbook from a coffee bar. And they decide to look there for whoever this Kennedy person is who they're after. By the way, this starts our like wacky British pronunciation thing for this entire serial where they see something that clearly says tricolor and call it trickler. <laughs> this, uh, this eventually leads to nonsense like alpha, beta, and omega. And I'm like... I can't believe the alpha and the beta I'm with, but the omega that's a beta new one beta me. is where you start to lose me, man. <laughs> so yeah, later on, uh, we find that Waterfield is concerned about the health of Hall after Kennedy had bashed him in the head with a pipe. So that's our first hint that maybe this Waterfield guy isn't as bad as he initially seems. And he verifies that Kennedy left the matches for the doctor to find. Waterfield never really struck me as bad per se. He he was like definitely mysterious and did not want to share anything with the people who were working for him. Yeah. Uh, Kennedy seemed downright sinister. Yeah. So Waterfield enters into a secret door in his office that's filled with computers and future tech. Behind the bookcase, which seems very Victorian, by the way. And later on, he tells his assistant that this um, Victorian jug that he removed from there is meant for a Dr. Galloway. He sends his assistant, Perry, to meet the doctor at a nearby coffee shop and tell him to come to the antique shop at 10 tonight. So after Perry leaves, Waterfield re-enters his metal room, sits on his awesome throne, and begins to talk to somebody, demanding the truth from them and saying that he's done everything they've asked. At the coffee shop, the doctor and Jamie have the following great exchange. The doctor notes, I'm being stared at. Is there something wrong with me? And Jamie taps his head and says, what, do you mean up here? And Perry approaches, delivers the message. In this scene in the original, the background music, you had Paperback Rider by the Beatles, and <laughs> nobody knows the trouble I've seen by the Seekers. But due to copyright issues, uh, those were removed for the animation. I remember the animation had a song that I knew... But it was like it, it feel it felt like a very strange choice. So when you mentioned that the Beatles had been pulled, I was kind of bummed. So shortly before ten, Kennedy breaks into Waterfield's office, snoops around, and finds his way into the secret room. While he attempts to break into a safe in there, a Dalek beams in and demands to know who he is. And the episode ends as Kennedy is backed into a wall. He's got to have shown up there before 9.30. Yep. Actually. We move on to episode two. Kennedy tries to run, is instantly dinged, and the Dalek just beams away. You know, I think that it's really kind of messed up 
to have this, you know, so close to <laughs> when the Kennedy assassination actually occurred. It seems like downright inappropriate. It's been four years since then. I guess the British aren't as sensitive to this <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, they haven't had a uh, prime minister assassinated since, what, 1780s or so? So the doctor and Jamie sneak into the store around 9.30. Well, the doctor sneaks in and Jamie very much louds in. I say that it's like a Scott in an antique shop. And this is where, you know, they notice that everything in here appears to be brand new, but also appears to be genuinely Victorian. I remember when we were watching this, wondering if in Jamie's time there was the concept of antiques. I guess there may have been because there was still antiquity then. It just seems like a, a weird concept to me for like someone from the past. And I mean, he's looking at objects that are from the future for him. So it's just like really strange to like put yourself in Jamie's shoes and try and work through that. It seems he'd be more likely to ask, what's this Victorian thing people are talking about? Why is it called Victorian? What's going on? The Victorian era lasted a long time, didn't it? Yep, quite Holy a while. Smokes. So yeah, um, they Jamie pieces together, hey, maybe this guy has a time machine. Nearby, at the same time, Waterfield has found Kennedy's body and demands to know why the Daleks killed him. A Dalek simply states there's only one form of life that matters and nopes out again. Is this the first... This is not the first time that they have delivered that line, I don't think. Oh, no. They, they, I think they say something like that's that once every story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, that's their whole Mission statement. Bet, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what makes them such a good enemy. And, like, I, it's one of the things that I think is very interesting as the series kind of develops, right? Like, how they really dig into that more. It's, it's it's cool. I, I I they're really starting to feel you know by this point like they they've definitely got the whole like Dalek as an archetype down you know and I found them at least a, a, at least a few times genuinely kind of disturbing. Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. Th- though I mean they are set well enough that we can still have some fun playing with that idea about the Daleks here later in this serial um, to great effect. So Waterfield cries about not being able to go on with this as he begins to lay a trap for his visitors. Meanwhile, Perry sneaks comes back into the store to try to figure out just what the heck is going on here with Waterfield. And the doctor just kind of sneaks up on him and goes, boo. As they start exchanging information, they go into Waterfield's office and they find Kennedy's corpse. I did like them teaming up with Perry a bit just because yeah. Waterfield... Like five seconds? No, no. Well, Water Waterfield doesn't really give him much of anything. So, like, they're both using the limited amount of information they've been able to figure out and, like, fill in each other's gaps, which I thought was kind of cool, like... Building up allies here. We don't we don't spend a lot of time with Perry, but uh... no, because pretty much as soon as they find the body, Perry just you know runs off into Dodo Land as he goes off and gets the cops. Which I respect. I respect. It's a very reasonable like that's a very reasonable reaction. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. 
So the doctor investigates the body, notes that he died in horrible agony, and finds that he's clutching half of the doctor's photograph. He realizes that there has to be another room behind here. Jamie finds the keyhole, but the door opens on its own. They go in, and we see, if you looked in the background behind them while they're in the room in the animation, you'll see Waterfield is kind of peeking in on them. Yes, yeah. (laughs) And so we see that, and they look around a bit. Jamie sees the other half of the doctor's picture sticking out of a, you know, obvious trap box. And when he opens it, gas pours out, knocking them unconscious. Waterfield pulls them into the teleporter, and they all vanish. They wake up in a Victorian house where a maid, Molly Dawson, serves them drinks and says the master, Mr. Maxtable, is expecting them. And this is where Bay is typing in the chat, Ah, the master! I did I did it in all caps. <laughs> I was, yeah. Uh... I feel like any time from now on, whenever they refer to a character as the master, I just have to say, not that one. Yeah. <laughs> I liked so first of all I I liked his canniness in um attempting to suss out like where where and when they were cuz mm. he rightfully suspected they were no longer in Kansas. Yeah. Uh and I'm also I just have to I just very fond of Molly. I like <laughs> I I find that like kind of scratchy voice very like endearing and adorable and that kind of We didn't get a whole lot of time with her though. I know. I felt really I was really mad when they when <laughs> made her run away crying. I was like <laughs> she could have been she was a lot she could have been a lot of fun. Would have been a better it would have been a good campaign. I, there was one reviewer who was like, you know, they present this this story presents us with a with a potential companion who's, you know, cool and tough and Fun, and then they gave us Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this serial has more women on average than most <laughs> than most serials, and completely squanders them. Does not pass also the true. Bechdel test. <laughs> I don't know. It's a. It's kind of a bummer that we get like what at least uh, I think it's just three. Yeah. Uh, interesting female characters and then decide not to do very much with them. <laughs> so, yeah, they when Maxtable comes in, you know, they find out that they're, the date is June 2nd, 1866. And believe it or not, this is our first trip back to the Victorian era on the show. It took huh. us four seasons, but we're here, folks. The Victorian era. Oh, and what a thrill <laughs> it is being so very, very indoors. Yeah. And <laughs> once in a stable. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It would be pretty cool if the next time we come back to the Victorian area, we can see this house explode. <laughs> I mean, it was very much... <laughs> Very much like budget H.G. Wells is how I just kept thinking <laughs> yeah. of it. Like, you know, like there's so much fun to be had with like the like man out of time Victorian adventurer through time. And they just don't do shit with it. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. They talk about mirrors for five seconds. They hypnotize somebody once. <laughs> 
Move it along, folks. We got an alien planet to go to. Let's blow this fucker up. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I was so mad. I mean, like, but at the same time, well, we'll get there. So the doctor angrily accuses them of taking his property and killing a man in that order of importance to him. But the two explain that they did not kill that man. There's a higher evil here. One that kidnapped Waterfield's daughter. And then Waterfield begs them to just do whatever these creatures ask. So we cut to Snow White. I mean, Victoria, who's in a cell communing with some chirping birds. Oh, yes. The, 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 the <laughs> fucking Rapunzel moment. <laughs> I was oh, so disappointed. <laughs> so, yes, our new companion is, in fact, a Disney princess. I was like, I was half expecting her to be like. <laughs> and the birds come in and be like. Well, free you, Miss Victoria. <laughs> you know, like we've made you a new dress. <laughs> a Dalek interrupts this, you know, Disney scene by ordering her, "Do not feed the flying pests." <laughs> it then makes her step into a noise machine that turns out to be a Dalek scale. <laughs> <laughs> it was wild. I did like I... this, you are underweight. <laughs> So the Dalek takes away her Disney moment, body shames her, and tells her that if she doesn't eat more food, she'll be fed by force. I thought it was wild because I wasn't sure exactly what this torture device was. And it's like, it's just a scale. It doesn't need to make that noise. We just made it make that noise. <laughs> the Daleks are incapable of making anything that isn't horrible. <laughs> I'm just wondering about that force feeding now. Is that like is this like a plunger situation? Like, <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> the plungers have to be used for something. I uh, I have to say, like I I found this part a bit odd because like up until this point, like the episode was like a a study in instant resolution. It's like you know, it's like what's what uh is is this guy from the past? Yeah, he's from the past. Does is there a secret room? Yeah, it's over here. Oh, I found the key. Doesn't matter, right? It just opens, right? And then, like, they, uh, it, you know, are they looking for you? Yes, they are. They have your picture, right? And then it's like instant. Oh, here's the other half of the picture. And then gas. And then, <laughs> uh, but like, in, but like, meanwhile, the, we, the audience, know there's Daleks all over the place. And they take like, three years to tell the doctor <laughs> and when he's finally had enough one of them just shows up yeah and he's like and he's like oh oh that's what you're talking about <laughs> okay <laughs> the pacing is just so strange yeah. because the next is exactly when that happens because the max because maxtable explains about the mirrors the great and the, evil and yeah. the great evil and the static electricity which you know that concept gets the doctor interested but before the doctor even, you know, has a chance to think about the static electricity, oh, a yeah. Dalek, yeah, Kool-Aid man's his way into the room and threatens to destroy the TARDIS unless he assists them in running a series of dangerous tests. And then the plot actually begins. Yes. <laughs> because we learn that these dangerous tests will be performed on Jamie. <laughs> They order him to reveal nothing to his friend and insist, you are in our power. The doctor then yells at the humans 
saying, what have you done with all your infernal meddling? What is this test? What's going on? Maxtable notes that they've, you know, the Daleks have told him that they've always been defeated by humans. So he suspects that they want to find that factor in humanity that allows them to do this and transfer it into their race. A.K.A. Mojo Extraction. Yep. <laughs> I... A.K.A. Alchemy. It's all about alchemy. I thought this was a really cool concept. Sure was. I, I explained it to Margaret. She was like, this is the antithesis of Daleks. They want to keep their race pure because they're Nazis. And I was like, huh. Yeah, but like, yeah. you have to think of it this way. It's an interesting thing to explore because it's like, what if... I mean, and according to several movies and people, there were. But, like, what if there was, like, a group of Nazis, powerful Nazis, that survived World War II and were like, woof, well, that that didn't work. That didn't go our way. Oof. Right, yeah. So, and, like, what, what weird shit would they resort to not Hellboy to try and figure, like, figure Clone it out? Clone de Fuhrer, yeah. Right. I thought, it was, I thought it was kind of interesting, an interesting idea. So, um, meanwhile, a random bum, Toby, wanders into the living room where Jamie has been resting. Not wanders. <laughs> he creeps in through the window. <laughs> like a goblin. Like, yeah, or like, like uh, who's the guy that, the, the cartoon guy is always tying people to railroad tracks. With the, oh, with snively the, whiplash. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's what he reminded me of. Like, <laughs> but like scruffier I don't know. right and when like and he's like he's really bonk happy right <laughs> he's like you know he's just like oh just gonna come in here and just whack a few people over the head don't make me do it again and he's just <laughs> yep because he whack-a-moles and- jamie he whack-a-moles <laughs> molly and you know the uh the doctor decides that he's going to tell jamie what's going on but when they go in, they only find a knocked out Molly. The doctor notes, if we can't find Jamie, the Daleks will great, take great pleasure in killing everyone in sight. And their greatest pleasure will be in killing me. And our episode ends. Yeah. I, uh, what would you call this guy? The Deuter antagonist or whatever? Like... Yeah, I was left, I was very much left wondering, like, what's with the hobo? (laughs) You know, like, it's, you know, like, very much like a, you know, hobo with a shotgun, only it's (laughs) tramp with a whacking stick, right? Like, what's, what's his deal, you know? Just in case uh, you thought it was going to an exciting Victorian place, it's not. Right, (laughs) right. Because where 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 do where do our friends wake up, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, the stable. <laughs> yep. Because in our thrilling conclusion to this cliffhanger, the doctor finds some straw on the ground. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they, never mind that the Daleks are here. We're doing Victorian time travel, and they want to extract human essence. We gotta Sherlock Holmes our way to the stable. That's. 30 feet away, apparently. (laughs) So, in the stable, a, now that we've switched to animation, rather cleaned up Toby, is arguing about his payment with Arthur Terrell, who we learn is the fiancé of Maxible's daughter, Ruth. Arthur is clearly under some kind of mental duress. 
he's constantly groaning, he's hearing voices, and seems to have at least three different personalities. Uh, the doctor comes in, Jamie is returned to him, and everyone just kind of wanders off. You know, Arthur would have been a pretty interesting role to play, though. Yeah? Because you do get that range. It's a meteor role than some. He's definitely, you know, he's got... <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't even say it with a straight face. Uh, yeah, it's... I kept kind of wondering what the whole point of him was, but it really does seem like they were just playing around with a lot of different stuff in this episode. There was definitely some more cool, cool stuff that they could have done with Arthur and Ruth. That, like, they didn't really expand on that much. And that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of... There's a lot going on, right? It's, just, it's a very full We literally full just cereal. got here from the 60s. Yeah. And we've just, like, it's like... Like, seriously, like, within the span of, like, an hour, right? We've gone from time-traveling dude mystery through uh, the a time portal to the 1800s to alchemy and playing with, you know, forces best left alone, to Daleks, to mind a, control, right? To, yeah. Uh, yeah, to a hobo with a <laughs> stick and a Sherlock, like now we're on our second, you know, red herring Sherlock find the thing mystery. Like there was a lot going on here. <laughs> Right. And then all of a sudden now we're, you know, like you say, we're talking about like mind control, maybe. And he's like, he's acting like a Dalek. It's it's a lot going on. Yeah. Maxtable has brought a giant, strong, dumb, mute black man named Kemmel and has him bend an iron bar. He shows him Jamie's picture, tells him this man is a killer (laughs) (laughs) and he must guard the house against him. Kemmel is taken to a tunnel and is told the man will try to pass through this booby-trapped door. We got to talk about Kemmel because Kemmel is definitely problematic, <laughs> but I really like Kemmel. I'm a Kemmel. I'm team I'm a, Kemmel. I'm team Kemmel, too. Yeah, I'm a Kemhead. Um, I, I, <laughs> I'm a chemist. <laughs> Yeah, no, Kemmel Kemmel is a great character if you ignore, like, all the problems with him. Well, the fact that we never actually see him. We Yeah, we never actually see him because he's he's an animated character. And he never speaks, which is really surreal. Yeah. Well, it's it's very frustrating. I mean, like, I'm I'm sure that there was, like, some decent performing going on there that we're just not privy to, you know, uh, because even that has to be inferred. But um, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I like the alternate reality in which we got a mute person of color as the doctor's companion. <laughs> that could have ah. been really wild. But uh, but I think that would be pretty hard to write. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, the problem with it is it's just it's like any character who must communicate in a way that is completely different from everybody else. Right. Without, you know, everybody. I, I mean, I still kind of like we're, we're seeing like a lot. I, you know, I've definitely noticed an, an increased trend recently of like deaf performers in. in yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And it that's it's very interesting to me. But it's it it always seems to suffer from the fact that it's that, that they are still kind of writing them into a show that is for hearing people. Yeah. Yeah. And 
you know, it, it there's and a, not a, dealing with like sensitivity on on issues. And, and even and I mean, they like do that. some they do sort of and it's it is it's it's an interesting trend. But at the same time, like whenever there's like interaction, there's inevitably somebody who doesn't speak sign language. Yeah. And then it's just like it just drags and like, you know, like it would. Um, and yet like writing, you know, an entire companion like that, like must, must have been, would have been quite yeah. tedious. And they make, they seem to make the most of it for, with what they, with what they do have. Like, that's a good question, Shawnee. Like, did they, I, I assume there were stage directions that they based all this animation off of, right? I or would assume at, so. At yeah. At least some pictures of the yeah. actor. Yeah. No, they definitely have pictures. Well, I'm going to say it right now. I, I have my fingers crossed and look forward to the day then that we have um, a companion that has some sort of other ability. You know, uh, I didn't want to say disability, but, you know, because I think that could make for some like interesting storytelling as well. Um, you've got to have a good writer, though. Yeah. Well, I mean that or you just make them somebody who has sex with everybody. Uh, and I think Shawnee knows who I'm talking about, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Captain. But uh, yeah, uh, I don't know of any, actually, now that I think about it, except for pe- those who get things for like a short period of time. But there, there are so many companions that I'm just not familiar with because I'm only familiar with Modern Who. So I'm kind of interested to see where that goes too. Fingers crossed. So yeah, the Daleks confirm that, yep, they want to get the human factor and put it into Daleks. They specifically want it from Jamie. Jamie, can you, like a lot of British housewives, always wanted also wanted the human factor from Whoa, Jamie. Yeah, I'm sure they did. Yeah. <laughs> Even the Daleks are thirsty for Jamie. Take off your shirt. <laughs> Leave this, on the kilt, though. <laughs> Let's get a good look at you. <laughs> The the specific test is that Jamie has to attempt to rescue Victoria as the doctor identifies what's going into making him act the way he acts, what's basically makes him human through each step of the process. But the thing I I liked about this extended sequence, I guess we should probably call it. The Jamie Kemmel Funhouse? Well, but it it gives you... Uh, a look at the doctor and how he's grown and like the appreciation he's developed for mankind over like the course of our series so far too this is same person that we've like now referenced multiple times as almost braining a a human with a rock in the in the first serial and and now we've moved on to like a true appreciation for what makes mankind so special. Well, yeah, I, I could not agree more. And it's certainly, yet again, another very early kind of example of like the archetype of the Doctor kind of being built. I really think that we, I mean, having seen it now, I, I think we need to give Troughton a lot of a lot of credit for what the like what the Doctor became as like an archetype, right? Mm-hmm. As a template. Definitely. It is kind of interesting to think that this is a human uh, acting all of this out, being observed by two aliens, one who is a specialist on humans, <laughs> and the other one that is completely clueless about humans trying to gain that knowledge. It's like. Pretty wild. (laughs) So, yeah, the doctor realizes that since the Daleks have the TARDIS, he has to agree, 
despite the fact that this might end up helping them create some super Daleks. Elsewhere, Ruth Maxtable introduces Arthur and Jamie. They snipe at each other for a bit until Arthur hears his noises and runs off. When the Doctor and Maxtable arrive, Jamie demands to know why the Doctor is, you know, being so chummy with these murderers because, you know, he's getting annoyed by the fact that nothing seems to be going on here. That and they are, you know, definitely like accessories to murder. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The Doctor basically tells him it's none of his business. He mentions where Victoria is. And he orders Jamie specifically not to try to be a one-man army and do not try to rescue Victoria, who is in the south wing of this house, but do not go and try to rescue her. And when Jamie storms off, the doctor just says, well, he's sure to try and rescue her now. <laughs> yeah, and also, like, I, <laughs> that, remind, that reminds me, like, <laughs> earlier when, like, I, I, I must have, like, looked away for a second and... You know, it's um, Maxtable, who who's basically like, I guess Kemmel's warden. Like his, it's, yeah, it, Maxtable hasn't been the bar, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I but I looked away for a second, and then I like I hear him like saying because we've just been talking about like how we're gonna we need to do like human essence extraction from from the subject, right? <laughs> and I'm and I hear him say, well, his his mind is not all there, and it's very dull. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, they're talking about Jamie. Like, like <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's not very nice, but I see it, you know. Um, and so that's what this—that's <laughs> what this scene made me think of. It's like it's so painfully obvious. Oh, don't you try and go rescue that girl, you naughty so and so, that girl that's in the south wing. And it's like any anybody who map. wasn't like a moron would have been like, okay, well, clearly this. What what are you talking about? But, of course, Jamie just is like, I'm going to go sulk. Yeah. And, and he's like, well, that idiot's going to do exactly what I exactly told him. exactly what yep. you wanted me to do. Because almost immediately, he, you know, gets help from Molly to get a map of the house and directions to the south, to the south wing. <laughs> the sulk spot? Yeah. <laughs> Out in the barn... Toby is again demanding his money from Arthur, much like Moon Knight seeking out Dracula. Arthur has one of his fits and gets bludgeoned and robbed. <laughs> Toby, Toby's like, it's been five minutes since I hit somebody with this stick. It's going to happen. As, as I recall, Arthur does not even remember hiring him no. or something like nope. this. That would be pretty Arthur awful. Arthur has no idea what's going on anywhere. He's got like two people in his head, and the one is just like hiring a murder hobo. Yeah. <laughs> is it good Arthur or bad Arthur that hires the hobo? Because like that, would, <laughs> if it was no, if it was good Arthur, that would make sense, right? Because it's like, why else would like? I mean, clearly, you know, he's got a you know, he's Dalek remote control or whatever. Why would he, why would remote con- why would a Dalek ally hire this like guy to come in and like spirit Jamie away, right? Like, like my my theory, my fridge theory was that it was like good Arthur who was like, I gotta find some because I'm kind of a you know, I'm kind of a wimpy fellow. I'm a very conflict averse. I gotta find like an unsavory individual to try and like fix this situation or something. I figure it's the pre-existing third personality who's <laughs> you know trying to do this and take care of this. Regular Arthur has no idea what's going on. 
Dalek Arthur is just, you know, obeying the Daleks. And third personality, Arthur is the one who hires murder hobos. What was his mandate again? Aside from whacking? Do we <laughs> kidnap know? Ja- it seems like you're supposed to kidnap Jamie for some reason. Why? But we don't know. Why? <laughs> nope. Okay. It's never explained. So yeah, what? after bludgeoning and robbing Arthur, Toby decides that he might find something in the house that's worth his trouble. And almost immediately gets dinged when he enters the Dalek room. Bye-bye, Toby. Yeah, thanks for showing up and <laughs> yep. doing whatever it was you do. <laughs> Bye-bye, murder hobo. I didn't hobo. even get paid. <laughs> well, he got those, he got, yeah, he, made, he got his, like, three coins. And then he's like, right, I'm going to go into the house, uh, get some stuff. I mean, if whacking happens while I'm in there, so be it. <laughs> but, like, then It's nothing. whacking day. Yeah, he's just... Such a strange character. He became whacked. He will not be missed. So the doctor is shown the device that'll record all of Jamie's actions and thoughts on a silver wire or some BS like that. <laughs> and the I, doc- I like how he's like, oh, silver wire, of course it makes sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and Jamie's adventure through Max Dibble's Adventure Castle begins. Yes, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's very much, I was like, <laughs> shades of um, Dragon's Lair, yeah. right? Except, you know, we right, right down to the, like, mute uh, protagonist. Yeah. I you was know? like, there's no way that he's going to get through this, like, trapped door that we've established. But he does. He gets through He that sure tra- does. He gets through the trapped door through by dumb, dumb luck. luck. When yeah. a rabies rodent comes flying out through it and he docks oh. under the spikes. <laughs> oh, I missed the, the, the rabies rodent. Yeah. I just like, I, I like, I, I kept looking away at inopportune moments, I guess, or something. But to me, it just looked like the spikes came down. And he was like, that's stupid. And just <laughs> kept nope. walking. He's busy ducking out of the way of a bat as when the spikes come down. So that's oh. what saves him. I found it much more interesting when he's just like, these traps suck. (laughs) (laughs) Episode four, Beavis and Butthead or Kemmel and Jamie. Yep, because when he enters the door, he finds some stairs and at the top is a rogue Kemmel. (laughs) And we move on to episode four, a.k.a. Patrick Chowden's on vacation, so we got to stretch this out a bit. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, I didn't... that I didn't clock that. He had a handful of pre-filmed inserts that were stuck in throughout, but yeah. As I recall, these middle episodes kind of sucked. <laughs> Aww. Uh, I wouldn't say sucked. They were just a little more padded. They dragged. It was a buddy. It was a buddy movie. Like you know, it was like Turner and Hooch. You know, what's the one with Cash? I don't remember who the who Tango Cash. and Cash. Thank you, Tango. You know, uh, it's it was like that. They, yeah. they start out, they become they become bros through an unlikely but painfully likely series of events. You know? <laughs> it's, it's it's okay. I mean, like to be fair though, the inserts, the Tratton inserts, are the ones that you know we were lauding earlier, right? Like the ones where he's talking about what makes Jamie's essence yeah. so good, right? So and, even though he is just sitting in a control room and it's shot from behind, and is now painfully obvious to me that he. That's what they were doing. Were these were these done prior to filming or after? I'm sure they were done prior to filming. 
Because it's probably like they, they pre-filmed them, um, stuck them in. Yeah. Kemmel starts strangling Jamie, who smashes him over the head with the vase, ineffectually punches him, and throws him over a railing through a table. So it's basically a WWE match. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this wrestler is not very good at wrestling. <laughs> like- but but I mean like he basically takes everything that Jamie throws at him and is unfazed. Yeah. Right. And then he falls for the old quick opening door trick. Yep, because he runs in one door that Jamie hides behind, out another, and off the roof. And he's there dangling until Jamie comes and saves him. It's better than like into a, a room full of barbed wire. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is a reference to Suspiria. Yeah, there's a horror movie, Shawnee, and I really like that someone just walks, steps through the door <laughs> into a barbed wire pit. <laughs> Shades of Cube. Oh, yes. man, that, that movie rules. Yeah. As this fight is going on, a Dalek is busy setting a trap. It comes in holding a handkerchief with Victoria's initials on them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, oh my god! Forgot about that. And it places it in the center of a room as an obvious trap. Oh. Wait, can we refer to her as Volkswagen from now on? <laughs> that would be pretty great. I really like how they like. I I mean I don't know if that's how. It, I mean it should, actually it was probably even worse in a live action. But like you know it just like it scoots in with its handkerchief and it's like damn I'm smooth and just kind of like slides back out again. God that was funny. The the hijinks like I do have to say that like it does it does seem like there are two things that are inextricably linked with the Daleks right. It's like extermination of the you know the evil fascist shit and like hijinks yeah right? like we have yeah. not yet seen daleks without hijinks except for maybe like the first time we see them right there's always some kind of hijinks with them which is i've always found very interesting well i hope you're you're strapped in because we're going straight into a home alone situation <laughs> soon jamie goes into the tra- obvious trap room sees the av- obvious trap handkerchief and does exactly what he did last time. He goes to pick up the obvious tra- trapped object because Jamie is an idiot. And Kemmel, who's supposed to be the dumb one, rushes in and pushes him out of the way of the trap that comes down. And so they instantly become the best of friends. So it's basically, you know, first there's Mortal Kombat, except they pushed the buttons for the friendship ending. <laughs> <laughs> Again? Yeah, I, I did. I did. I did kind of like that. It's like it pushes him, and for a second you're like, "Oh, he couldn't. He just couldn't overcome his conditioning." But then he's just like, "Thumbs up." Yeah. And Jamie's like, "Yeah, thumbs up." You know, don't do drugs. <laughs> Winners don't do pros. drugs. So the doctor points out that Jamie's courage in fighting that Turkish wrestler and his mercy in saving Kemmel led to this outcome. The Dalek calls it weakness, but the doctor calls it the human factor. Which I, you know, despite being canned and pre-filmed, I was like, at this point, I was like, I was like, yeah, this is his plan all along. Elsewhere, 
Maxtable and Waterfield are on corpse disposal duty. Waterfield <laughs> just doesn't want to do this anymore and weeps as he's told to dispose of the body. This is really, I think, where both of their characters really gelled for me. Yeah. Because, like, prior to this, Waterfield had been, like, kind of this gray character. Like, you you didn't know whether to trust him. I mean, like, you saw him interacting with what eventually turned out to be the Daleks. Like, I had a very negative opinion of him fairly early on. But at this point... His daughter is kidnapped and he's like pushing back against Maxtable's increasingly craven yeah. outlook on everything. Um, he's like, what, what did I have uh, written down here? There's, He says, we're equally to blame because we stand by and do nothing. Uh, I think it was was the quote that I'd written down verbatim. Yeah, because in a later scene, what I wrote down was... When Maxtable points out, we are not the murderers, and Waterfield says, just the silent partners. Yeah. It, it's very much, I mean, we, we talk about the Daleks being fascists, and uh, in the wake of World War II and all the horrors on the continent and everything, you know, like, there's the idea of, like, the, the silent, innocent bystander, or, or whatever, and they're really playing on this except Waterfield is horrified by being the bystander, whereas Maxtable tries to use it to justify like this awful behavior to himself. Yeah, because Maxtable is really on the side of we aren't to blame for any of this, and Waterfield says that once his daughter's safe, he's going to the police, confessing his part in all this. And as Waterfield begins to haul the body away, Maxtable pockets a pistol. Right. Maxtable, oh, oh, what to say, <laughs> right, about this fellow. Um, yeah, this is definitely, again, to echo what Bay said, it would so have been nice to see his performance because this motherfucker is all over the place. Like... <laughs> Just like a complex melange of motivation and emotion. Like, what? What does he want? Like, he got, he's, he goes from like kind of in control. You know, this is how it is in my house. You know, I'm explaining the story to you. To up upbeat yet, uh, you know, downtrodden victim. To at this point, we're starting to get like some shades of like that his motivations may not be entirely savory. And then, like, you know, of course, as we proceed, yet more happens. Uh, he's a complicated guy. I'm, not, I'm still not sure what to make of that character. I mean, he he really spins out here into, like, some real craziness. Yeah, I mean, he's about, he's like, isn't this, this is right where he's all about to, like, with the pistol. He's, like, seconds away from murders, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know... Maxtable and Waterfield continue to argue as they place the body out in the corpse barn. And he's about to, you know, when he sends um, Waterfield back to the house, he's about to shoot him in the back. But Arthur appears, stops him and throws the gun away and says, go back to the lab. You will obey. Meanwhile, Jamie's having a get to know you chat with Kemmel. 
And the first thing that he learns about Kemmel is that Kemmel can't talk. Kemmel writes his name as an introduction and shows Jamie a small flower that he keeps that Victoria gave to him. They agree to work together to save her. Bit later on, we see Arthur screaming at Molly as Molly is insisting that she heard Victoria's voice somewhere in the house. Ruth stops him and begs him to leave this place with her, but Arthur refuses. Meanwhile, Maxtable is telling a Dalek that he's tired of waiting for what he's owed. We have a partnership, and he demands to give, get given what was promised. The Dalek just says, when he's told we have a partnership, the Dalek says, you have obeyed us. And Maxtable says, and I could ruin you if I don't get what's promised. The Dalek knocks him down, says, do not threaten, obey, and wanders off as Maxtable is begging for the secret he was promised. I, I didn't really get the play here uh, like from either of them, by the way, uh, either the Daleks or Maxtable. At this point, as far as I can tell, Maxtable's served his purpose. He's delivered the doctor. I don't think he has any other purpose. He serves beyond his purpose that. like hundreds of times over. Like I, 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 I was certain there were like at least three points in this serial <laughs> where they're gonna be like, "You served your purpose, goodbye." And yet, like hilariously, this is one of the things that I found. I don't know. I just I don't know why I couldn't stop laughing. But he's like. I, I don't know if he's actually on the floor at this point. I, I do believe they knock him over. <laughs> yeah. Right. And he's and he they basically they've basically slapped him to the ground. And he's like a, a blue, blue, blue. And then he's basically just, you know, but you will give me the secret. You will. The thing you've promised me. And the Dalek's like, yes. And that's like, <laughs> just, like just, what's like. I, I just thought that it was funny that he was pressing them when, you know, like he has the least leverage that yeah. he has the entire serial. Oh, yeah. He's a, he's he's the king of like getting checked. <laughs> getting Dalek <laughs> checked. He gets very big for his britches many different times. Yeah. So when the Dalek leaves, Maxtable convinces himself that he shouldn't be frightened these people are just alien and different. And, you know, this is just a normal exchange where they're from. This is their way. Yep. Ruth comes in asking, why has Arthur changed so much? Where's Victoria? What's going on? And Maxtable <laughs> finally explains to us what this is all about. Gold! <laughs> Victoria's just the audience at this point. <laughs> what the he H is happening? Oh, it's all about gold. He goes yes, on gold. ranting about gold and alchemy and, of course, gives it a uh, nice nothing and nobody will stop me, although it's not quite up to the levels set uh, several episodes ago. Oh, no, I don't know. It was pretty not. good. It was, <laughs> good. it was a great line. He is good, but not... No, that not good. not that. No, not, not drain the ocean into the earth. <laughs> In the South Wing, a Dalek is having Victoria stand on a balcony, repeatedly yelling out her name like some sort of Pokemon, because that's the kind of thing that's natural for a human to do. <laughs> I really liked it though. It was like the set piece. It's like this is how you bait. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> and he was like, yell your name, Victoria. Yell your name. Right. Uh, you know, just, just, to, just to keep the... I mean, it's basically like she's basically like you know Princess Peach or or like again to bring it back from to uh, to like um, Dragon's Lair, right? It's she's like the the princess being kind of dangled and then snatched away by the floating hand in the Funhouse of Horror video game sequence. You know, <laughs> it's just very strange. Like, I guess like I just kept wondering like how did he come help? with this this is so strange <laughs> it is a very bizarre plot by these Daleks <laughs> how did he write this like I was just like it's like alright so we gotta like make get Jamie and, and they're testing him so how are they testing him well all we've got is this one house okay okay I can work with this right and just you know weird weird shit so Kemal and Jamie are nearby they work together to ding a Dalek by smashing it into a fireplace. Then they climb a rope to the balcony. As the episode ends, they watch a Dalek down below as another comes out of the hallway behind them. And we move on to episode five. I, you know what? We'll, we'll get into this a little bit more, but Kemal and Jamie are pretty good Dalek smashing team. Yeah. Yes, they, they are. They get a pretty decent kill count. Yeah. This serial. I was I was sh- like shocked because like I don't know as a as a modern Doctor Who fan like killing a Dalek is a big fucking deal and they kill like two of them in the span of five minutes yes. one with like a, <laughs> a rope and the other one they just more or less like what push off of a ledge or something yeah like, they close line one of them yeah yeah because in this next episode they knock the dalek that's behind them over the railing and right. it crashes to the floor below and explodes yes but there's like he's got his little wiggly blob right inside Whoa. which is this is this the first appearance of the Dalek creature? We saw well, we, we saw, saw them procreating. Yeah. yeah, but this is the full like full frontal. Yeah, right. I it's think a shame. so. It's a shame that it's that it's lost. I would have been very interested to see like what that like actually looked like. But I remember when the one blew up in the fireplace. I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> like it was a rope. Like like yeah. No. And this no. this one explodes from a one story fall. Right. So no. not the most hardy Daleks on this yeah, mission. Yeah, they were still learning how to build them back then, I guess. Well, I mean, at least they don't have to travel on metal floors anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Although it does it does take them until many years later to to, to have them not be stymied by stairs. Yeah. I digress. Now, hold on. This means that this has to take place in their timeline after the Dalek invasion of Earth. Because don't, I think that's the first place we saw that even, technology. Don't try. I'm serious. I, I have to. Oh, like, just, okay. If you're a time-traveling civilization and you do not have any morals, time no longer matters. So everything is happening simultaneously for the Daleks. Solved. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. <laughs> the tachyons. The tachyons are getting in the way. Some beautiful sophistry right there. <laughs> so they enter the room it was guarding to find Victoria, and Kemmel begins loading chests in front of the door as a barricade, while Jamie introduces himself to the pretty girl and returns her hanky. The doctor is talking with Arthur, and notes, you know, 
I've never seen you eat or drink anything, nor has anyone. I, which is interesting for it being the first scene that he has with Arthur. Yeah. Arthur threatens him with a sword, and the doctor pulls a screwdriver and shows that Terrell is filled with static electricity because he's somewhat magnetic. A statement which makes absolutely <laughs> no sense given the nature of static electricity. Right. Nor <laughs> is it important at this point. No. Or revisited at all. So like Well, it, it just indicates there's something about him that's Dalek. I, yes, I thought I that guess, maybe he like, was at this a robot. Point, there at are this literal point? Daleks. Yeah. Right? That's the part that had me so confused about this whole thing. It's like, why do you need a mind controlled agent? You're right there. I can see you. <laughs> right? Like I ju- we just threw them into the fire. Like fighting. We are fighting now. Fighting is happening. And yet, like, we still are talking about, like, this mind control guy and, like, trying to suss out his mystery. (laughs) Why? I just don't get it. He's definitely, like, a weird addition that we didn't particularly need or want. Um, I will say every time the doctor uses a screwdriver, I wonder if that's going to be the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of curious about that as well because, again... I am a modern Who fan, so a lot of these like fundamental firsts, right, are 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 fresh and new to me. So I'm I am desperately waiting for that first time they come because like by the time you get to modern Who, it's just like it's like well clearly that's his sonic screwdriver. What are you stupid, right? Like that's a TARDIS. That's the sonic screwdriver. You know they're well established. Yeah, and yet it has yet to make an appearance. That would make for a really good trivia question. It's like. What is the first appearance of the Doctor Screwdriver and the Master in the same episode? Uh, you know, I I have asked <laughs> in trivia contests that I've won. I have asked when the first appearance of the Sonic Screwdriver was. So it's coming someday. By the way, it is not this episode. No. So the Doctor does have a famous line here where he notes, "I am not a student of human nature." I'm a professor of a much wider academy of which human nature is merely a part because Chowden gets all the good lines. Yeah. And that's just the first of his many humdingers that he (laughs) drops on us in this episode, which I'm sure we'll get to. After the doctor leaves, Terrell tries to take a drink, but hears a voice saying obey and he has another one of his seizures. You know, I I wish uh, Daleks would stop me every time I decided that I needed, you know, like that extra slice of cake or whatever. <laughs> obey. Ah! <laughs> Isn't Maggie there to say obey? Yeah, but you know, <laughs> she delivers that one a little nicer. <laughs> Meanwhile, Victoria explains that she only remembers a voice telling her to obey and ended up waking up in a bare room. Jamie says that someone must have been helping these Daleks, but who? Smash cut to Maxtable hypnotizing Molly as Arthur watches, telling her that she's been dreaming that there are mysteries in this house. Victoria isn't here. It's all your imagination. But this is, again, again, this is what Andy was talking about. It's like, well, clearly they needed somebody to be helping them. Smash cut to Arthur. And it's like, no, it's not Arthur. We're hypnotizing her. Yeah. yeah. The other character in the episode that doesn't need to be here. <laughs> 
I know. And it's also like this, this, this whole scene, like we're already off the rails, folks. (laughs) There's a, there are two men fighting in, in what amounts to like American Ninja Warriors, (laughs) gladiators, whatever, American gladiator stuff. There are Daleks running around blowing up and they're, and like, they're like, oh, we, um, we shouldn't. We we don't, we should hypnotize the maid very slowly and methodically <laughs> so that she doesn't tell anybody. We're, yeah, we're, we don't want anybody to think there's anything funny going on here. Explosions <laughs> in the distance. House. You know, like what? Like it's it's just it. It's another interesting and weird little plot point that I'm just. It's just like that. What is it doing here, though? Yeah, right? like earlier. Early, like wait, you remember that that building tension thing that you were doing? Like you can't do that anymore, right? Dalek's <laughs> blowing up now. We're we're going to Scarrow at some point in the near future. <laughs> I've heard. Like, what are we hypnotizing the help for? Yeah. Right? It's, you can't go back. So. It's really hard to find good help anymore, Andy. <laughs> I, I know. It's like we gotta, yeah. We can't let this one go. Uh, yeah. She's already been yelled we at. We need she's... her to clean up Scaro. We need yeah. her husky voice. Right. She's yeah. She's she's eyeing that like I don't know witch's house down the street or whatever to go work there. So afterward, to add more confusion, Maxtable gives Arthur a task: bring me Victoria Waterfield. Why does Maxtable want Victoria? Ooh, fucked if I know. Yeah. <laughs> Why anything anymore? She, yeah, her, the, I'm really mad about her <laughs> because, like, now that I think about it some more, like, it's like, so I, I early on, she was like the motivation, right? Like, mm-hmm. she's like the, you know, I've got to do this moral dilemma, you know, good. Uh, w- what is a good person in an evil, you know, situation, right? Like that kind of interesting philosophical quandary that we've seen so many times and yet she's there to motivate who exactly like i mean yes or like yeah she's there to motivate like one of the (laughs) weaker characters i don't know (laughs) it's like it's so again again right it's like the oh i have to do this because of my daughter no i mean like i'm blowing up they're blowing up the the house over there right like again like we've it's it's strange. It's like every like we we keep trying to step back into like this calmer building up of tension. It's like I'm, I'm sorry. That's that's done. So, so the doctor shows Edward Waterfield a positronic brain containing all the best virtues of humanity that he's collected. It's like a little USB stick. Yeah. Also very interesting. I mean. Isn't that like shades of Star Trek: The Next Generation? Right. Yep. Like, very interesting. So one of these is to be implanted in each of three test Daleks. Waterfield says that he mustn't do it, and the doctor snaps back. It's no use having conscience now. It was too late when they stole your daughter, when you stole my TARDIS. Waterfield thinks that he's just handing the whole world to the Daleks, but the doctor says that he's not so sure. Waterfield decides to pull a Toby and grabs a pipe to brain the doctor, but the doctor just t- quietly turns around and takes it away. More more of what Andy was talking about with, you know, like, oh, something's going to happen. No. no. Yep. Nope. Back with Jamie, he and Kemmel are trying to block the door. 
A wall opens behind them, and Arthur pulls Victoria through. Jamie and Kemal split up to look for her, and Jamie ends up getting into a sword fight with Arthur. This was one moment where I actually wish that we had the live version of the... I mean, the animation is quite good, right? Yeah. But um, it also was one of those moments... In a lot of moments during like these stories, Jamie is very much a fish out of water. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, but then I was like, that. oh, this is a skill that Jamie actually has. Right. Yes. Like he was at Culloden. I'm sure Culloden, I'm sure that he like actually knows how to handle a sword. I'm surprised that Arthur was able to put up much of a fight at, at all. all. Right, at all. Yeah. That's But uh then again, I guess he's Dalek powered. Yeah. Well, and I my the only thing in my head cuz like I like yeah, that scene started and I'm like that man's dead. Like, <laughs> that's that's a, like But then he keeps going. I'm like I guess that man had like a lot of fencing lessons because it's like that's one of the only people in that era that I can imagine kind of stacking up to to him. Like somebody who's like rich and had just like a crap load of fencing lessons because otherwise, like, like I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> he may be wearing a turtleneck, but we know where he's from. It was interesting. So, and yeah. It was, also, it was also pretty cool. I would love to see it. Ruth, Molly, and eventually the doctor happen upon the scene. Ruth's begging them to stop. Arthur has a fit, which ends up ending the fight. Uh, the doctor tells Ruth to take Arthur away from here as soon as possible. It's the only way to save him as he removes the control unit from inside Arthur's shirt. Before Ruth, Arthur, and Molly head off into Dodo land, the doctor promises Arthur that Victoria is okay. And after they leave, Jamie says, well, that was a lie. And the doctor says, well, it's one we must turn into a truth. Kemmel, meanwhile, finds a passed-out Victoria in the lab. A Dalek appears and orders him to pick up the human female and move into the time cabinet that's nearby. Jamie, meanwhile, is yelling at the doctor, calling him too callous, and says that we're through. The test Daleks start moving. The doctor calls them friends, noting that human beings are always within reach of other human beings. One of the Daleks picks him up and rides around with him as the doctor laughs. These Daleks are childlike and they're playing a game. And we move on to episode six. It, it's very interesting to me because the Daleks themselves, they're, they're organic. Mm -hmm. They need radiation to survive. What we think of as a Dalek is actually basically their mech. Yes. Right? Yet... We can still apparently program them to some extent. I'm not sure if this is supposed to be like... It's not altogether clear to me how like the Dalek and human essence works. It's a very cool concept. Magic. Alchemy. That's it. it. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. It all comes down to craziness, alchemy, and weird pseudoscience. Yeah, this... Don't even this try to figure out. This particular serial yeah. is... is <laughs> chock full of it don't don't try to figure out anything that makes scientific sense or anything in this story because there isn't anything 
Well, I did I did quite like the idea of like a Dalek super serum. Yeah. But it seemed pretty clear to me that like when the doctor programs humanized Daleks that they were going to be friendly. I didn't necessarily think that they would be toddlers. <laughs> but they're just two year olds. I, I I say as the father of a two year old. They're they're two year olds. So, yeah, the doctor exclaims, they've got the human factor, we've done it, while the Daleks whistle and start chanting, trains, trains. As I said, <laughs> we, we sat downstairs and watched for about 30 minutes this evening a train compilation video. <laughs> God bless those wacky people out online that will like film this and upload it. They have warmed my child's heart, and apparently these Daleks' hearts. Yes. I mean, this, uh, to, to, to bring it back to Ghostbusters for a second, this is very much where we got into, like, the whole, like, mood slime territory that I'm <laughs> thinking about throughout here. Right? Your it's love! Like, yeah. Like, he's, he's, like, gonna transmute this, this, the, the bad slime into good slime. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was like, I was down with that. I'm like, ah, his plan comes to fruition. I guess it is really appealing to like to see Daleks uh, running around being fr- like they're downright cute. They're just cute, spinning around. They're they're making circles. They're chanting. Yeah, they're chanting friends, friends. The doctor give marks names on their casings. Alpha, Beta, and Omega. Ugh. And they begin to Pokemon chant their names. And then they say they must go. Their planet needs them because <laughs> all Daleks have been ordered to return to Scarrow. Jamie and the doctor realize that Victoria is still somewhere and they run off to try to find her. Meanwhile, Carl Markstable tells Waterfield that Victoria has been released. Run along and see. Waterfield runs off to find her, and Maxtable begins investigating a box that the Daleks had just left lying there on the floor. As Waterfield listens in, a Dalek orders him not to touch it and orders him to fetch the doctor. Maxtable continues messing with the Dalek box, and Waterfield confronts him, demanding to know what arrangement he made with the Daleks. Maxtable rants about alchemy for, like, the tenth time, and Waterfield says he doesn't give a damn about gold and begins to choke him, demanding to know where his daughter is. Maxtable manages to knock him out, and then he learns that the box is a bomb and will destroy his lab, and he almost gets the fact that the Daleks are the baddies. He's like, oh, no, not my house. You can't do this to my material things. It's like, they want to do this to the earth, bro. (laughs) But how am I going to do my magic now? I like how he's, like, churlish about it, too. I'm not not helping any further. You blew up my house. (laughs) (laughs) But I put so much time into my lab. (laughs) It's everything that's good. Although, to be fair, I almost teared up a little bit at that. Because like I was just like I I get it like if somebody oh, went down if somebody my, like, burned down to my workshop I would be pissed yeah yeah I mean that's where I go to take things apart and ruin them forever but it's the way <laughs> I do it I do it on my time right it's it's my ruining <laughs> right 
as also as some, as a fairly recent you know new homeowner it certainly <laughs> i was like no don't blow up his house and his workshop that's all i i mean he has to live for wow i just realized that when next we record an episode we'll probably all be homeowners film at 11 <laughs> oh <laughs> but anyways drop a bombshells while recording we'll get back to this <laughs> He yells for the doctor, then flees <laughs> into the cabinet, as do a bunch of Daleks. The doctor arrives, sees the box, and notes that their only choice is to follow the Daleks to Scarrow. This thing is going to blow up about half a mile around us, so ding for anybody living half a mile within half a mile of this house. Chaos, doctor. Yeah. yeah. I mean... I hope Molly's. I hope Molly's okay. I I assume they left long enough that you know they're already outside of the half mile radius, and well, Waterfield manages to come to, point them toward the time machine. They get in, and the bomb goes off, and for the first time in this show, we return to a planet that isn't Earth. Oh, that's an interesting bit of trivia. That's true. I was a little bit disoriented. Because, yes, I knew that the, the Daleks were going to try and go back to Scarrow. I thought their fate was already sealed because of the, like, crazy toddlers <laughs> that uh, that the Doctor had unleashed. But um, I halfway expected us to end up back in 1960s. Nope. Oh, yeah. I was, like, I, I was actually surprised that, like, I was, like, oh, yeah. I mean, like, we they don't... St- to my knowledge, they don't really reuse much of like the kind of like exterior work they did. But, you know, there was definitely a couple points where I was like, oh, yeah, that's where Manfredicus died. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that cliff. It's a world of cliffs, Scarrow. <laughs> Victoria and Kemmel are in a cell on Scarrow and Maxtable gets put in there as well. I, I just, since we were talking about how Scarrow looks, because we've only ever seen it, by the way, in black and white, but the animation is in is color. kind of Marsy. Yeah. And it looks different than I thought it would. Yeah, it was kind of Marsy, but also I was watching this and wondering to myself, is this before or after, like, how soon after, you know, like Dalek Armageddon, this is a post-apocalyptic society right their Mm -hmm. world has been destroyed by radiation yeah it's like oh god they're just like walking out there unprotected we don't know what time it is in their timeline are they just gonna like melt uh but that wouldn't be much of a story and the episode ends with them melting (laughs) alas maxtable explains that they've been sent to the daleks planet but victoria just doesn't seem to get it so Apparently, she might be as much of an idiot as Jamie. After Dalek takes Maxtable away, Victoria promises to protect Kemmel, and they have a good chuckle about it. Yeah. And what a great job she does, too. Yeah. Uh, so, first of all, like, Scarra was, like, for some reason, I mean, I just, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right, it's red. I don't know that. I didn't know that. Like, why did I think it was red? But I did. Like, it just, like, when I like I saw it, I was like, yeah, that's exactly how I remember it. No, it's not. But um, the other thing about it was, like, I, I, I really liked Maxtable's energy in that cell, that kind of, like, dead-eyed stare, like, that kind of, I'm, no, like, I'm still, don't worry, I'm still going to get what I was promised. 
but like nonetheless doubting it and very kind of like I like that too. Like he's he's all in and he's coming unhinged and it's kind of cool. I think he spends this episode in a top hat as well. Which yeah, is, uh, he does. He does. That's my face. Well, I mean, he was going, very he fancy was, of him. He was going. He was going on a like a, a journey. Yes, he's going out for a, a morning constitutional. <laughs> on <Scarrow>. yeah. <laughs> Outside the cell, Maxtable yells at the Daleks for destroying his house. Then the Daleks learn he didn't bring them the doctor, and they prepare to ding him. But alarms start going off. There are other humans inside the city. Victoria hears this with hope. It may be Jamie and the doctor. There's a chance. Elsewhere... A black Dalek questions Omega about that weird mark on his casing. Omega says that it's my name. The doctor gave it to me. He is my friend. (laughs) (laughs) The black Dalek orders Omega to follow. In their cell, Victoria is now refusing to speak with or acknowledge Maxtable who's now just a whimpering man-baby. Yes, he's a husk of a man in the corner. The Daleks take Maxtable away, and we hear him scream in agony, and then they come for Victoria. Which I honestly, I, like, when I heard that, I like, that another, yet another performance that I thought was pretty good from him, because, like, I was like, I I was like, if I heard that, like, that, that, uh, that boy is not getting, you know, the ray gun. He's oh, taking yeah. their time with him. Like, yeah. was, He's getting the plunger. Like, it's yeah. like, it, it's like there's like wet sounds coming out of it. Like, it <laughs> sounds like he's having, having his guts taken out or something. I was really impressed with that screaming. Like, best screaming in the show so far. So outside, they hear a scream, and Jamie goes to run almost over the cliff. A Dalek comes claiming to be Omega. The doctor trips, sees the mark, and immediately pushes the Dalek over the cliff. (laughs) I I thought this was great. And he's like, you thought I wouldn't recognize my own mark? That's a fake Omega. (laughs) That was pretty good. That was the... the the good unceremonious pushing off of the cliff that we get in this episode. That's the good one. Inside, we learn that it wasn't the Daleks, it was Maxtable who made Victoria scream, as on the Daleks' orders, he twisted her arm in the dark to use her as bait to draw them into the city. Yeah, I mean, this is all, this this whole serial is all about, like, making Vicky sounds to lure people. I mean... Apparently, it's very effective. The doctor soon encounters some Daleks who order them to follow. They are taken to a giant Dalek in a dark room. Awesome. Oh, yeah. And the doctor says, we meet at last. I wondered if we'd ever meet. And when I say run, run. This this is his like line. Yes, this it? has become his catchphrase. What I say, Vaughn. When when he said that, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is like iconic Troughton." I did I I didn't even realize necessarily that that was his catchphrase, but I was like, "This has to be his catchphrase." Yeah. Well, and it's all it's also always cool when. A doctor says something like that because (laughs) it's at that point that you recognize like so often the doctor is in complete control but in like in these types of situations you recognize that he is 
he has very little clue about what he's doing and <laughs> and you are in a mortal danger so yeah. you better keep up like i hope you got good running shoes especially with chowden because chowden is a version of the doctor that thrives on chaos <laughs> and you know the the doctor continues saying that you know this has basically been his plan all along the day of the daleks is at end there are daleks who will question and who will revolt the emperor utters silence and says that might have been your plan but my real plan the human factor that you thought i was after that's nothing it's useless that was just to show us what the dalek factor is those Daleks will be implanted with a Dalek factor again to obey, to fight, to hate, to exterminate. And the Dalek Emperor intends for the Doctor to spread the Dalek factor throughout the entire history of Earth and then shows him the TARDIS with which he will do so. I was losing my mind. This was maybe one of the best cliffhangers I think we've ever had. Um, obviously, you know, like knowing that this was a seven part serial, um, I knew everything was going to like bust loose uh, here in the last episode. And obviously, you know, like that's not really enough time to spread the Dalek factor throughout Earth's history. Like it seemed pretty clear now that that wasn't going to happen. But man, if I had watched this in the 60s, I would have been running in circles around the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And just as a note I have here, that the actual emperor prop that they made was this giant 12-foot-tall monstrosity. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it did touch the ceiling of the, yeah. the studio, didn't it? So it was, yeah, it was a massive prop. Episode seven, the doctor yells, no, you can't make me do it. I will not do it. And the emperor just says, you will obey. Yeah, what's the leverage here? That's my question. <laughs> They're all put in the cell where the doctor is playing his recorder as Maxtable continues to mumble about alchemy. We almost got through the yeah. serial without him whipping that damn thing out. <laughs> Maxtable is talking about alchemy so much that Jamie is just prepared to fuck him up at this point. Yeah. But, but a Dalek tells him, do not harm this human being or you will be exterminated. Oh, okay. Yeah, We're still holding like, on to again, this dude. What is he, like... It's like that thing in your garage you won't throw out. There's a no. They they, <laughs> well, then, they have plans for Maxtable. There is a reason they want Maxtable alive. We'll see it in just a few minutes. While this is happening, the doctor talks with Victoria, saying that he can't do what the Daleks are asking, even for all the lives in this room. These lives against all of Earth. That shit was dark. Yeah. Yes. And like, yeah, that was that. That's when I was like, I, that's when I was like paying a little bit. I was paying some pretty close attention because it's definitely Whitaker kind of doing more foundational shit, apparently. Yeah. And I was like, not only all of Earth, all of Earth now. Yes. All of Earth in the past, all of Earth in the future, all of Earth ever. And, yeah. you know, he continues saying, even if I did it, if we got out, where would we go? Yeah. Where would you yeah. go? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, your entire history is gone. Yeah, it's, it's scary stuff. 
Elsewhere, a Dalek is ordered to do work and asks, why? This is so good. <laughs> when the Emperor learns of the Dalek who said why, he orders it found. Back in the cell, a Dalek shows Maxtable an alchemy machine, and he runs through an archway to his precious... But the archway infects him with the Dalek factor, and he starts acting like a Dalek. So this is why they wanted him around. They knew exactly what would cause Maxible to go running through this archway, showing him his gold machine. And they wanted somebody to test the Dalek factor on. Okay. They actually do show him, though. Yeah. They show him the machine working. Yes. And I'd written written down about this because I thought it was wild. <laughs> like, the machine has the atomic weight and gravity of iron, and it converts it to gold. Yeah. Like, they are shown at an atomic level, I guess. Yes. The, the the one element turning into the other. Yeah, I was like, Kit Peddler, you, you son of a bitch, you did it. <laughs> well, he this, figured it out back then. This this was David Whitaker, but you it know was. they they probably said, "Hey, Kit Peddler, is this nonsense?" And he's like, "No, it works." Yeah, that <laughs> science happen. that could happen. He's like, okay, but you have to do it this very specific way. Yes. <laughs> I when he went through the archway, I was like, oh, they turned him into lead. That's funny. Like, <laughs> the, that's like I thought they were being poetic because he like he gets a little grayer, and I'm like, oh, he's lead. And then he turns around and he's a dog, and I'm like, oh, we've already seen that this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, he's turned into a. Uh, Delectable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a mintable. So that night, Dalek Maxtable appears to hypnotize the doctor into walking through the archway. And we get a Dalek doctor. Dalek doctor is shown the machine that'll mass produce the Dalek factor. And another one that will turn it into a steam that he is to use to spray into the Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> Listen, we've got to atomize the Dalek factor. Yeah. <laughs> Essential oils and human. <laughs> when Maxtable leaves, the doctor sneaks back to the cell and uh, removes the Dalek factor capsule from the archway, replacing it with a different capsule. How chicky. Yeah. He then, in a normal voice, tells them all to walk through the next time a Dalek does so. So, at this point, we the audience is, like, totally onto it. Like, we know what's going to happen. Yeah. The thing that took me out of it a little bit was exactly how the doctor knew that going through that archway was not going to delecify him. Eh. It was a risk he was willing to take, I suppose. Plus, you know, as he says later, I'm not human. Well, yeah. I mean, like, is this... I'm trying to think. We've certainly fiddled with the idea before that the Doctor is, like, from another planet. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've established that he's from another planet, yes. But, like, this is the first one where they're... I guess they still didn't quite come out and say it. But, like, this is as close as we've ever come to being, like, he is an alien, Right. Like, by the by the way, his physiology is different, guys. Okay. Right. Yeah, I think this is the first time they explicitly state that he is not human. Nah. Yeah. 
I mean, at least he does, right? It's yeah. interesting because in this very same episode, the Daleks are like, well, you're more than human because of all that time travel you're doing. And it's like, what? But then, like, at the end, he's basically like, no, I'm not from Earth. I'm from another planet. Like, I'm fucking alien. And it's like, okay, can we stamp that into canon now and stop with this, like, back and forth stuff? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. I'll be interested to see if they, like, stick with it or if it was just something they were experimenting with. Every point. time Whitaker shows up, he just decides to, you know, make something canon that he's like, this should have been canon a long time ago. Stamp it. Yeah, he's a fascinating <laughs> writer. <laughs> so, a Dalek soon enters to retrieve the doc- doctor. And as they walk out, the doctor winks to Jamie. The humans argue about whether or not to trust him as the doctor is busy convincing the emperor that all Daleks must pass through the Dalek factor archway in order to get rid of the human factor in any of these questioning Daleks. As Daleks start going through, the doctor urges the humans to do it as well. And uh, Jamie decides to trust the doctor. He goes through the arch, is fine, and the others follow. It is a real roller coaster with Jamie, this serial, by the way. Yeah, he also, doesn't he, like, do a fake, like, shimmy back and forth when he patches to the arch, right? Like a dick. Yeah. Like, like, why are you doing this bit? Like, your brain is melting. (laughs) You know? Gotta really sell it. So Waterfield decides that he's going to go and help the doctor, and he says his goodbyes to Victoria as the others head out of the Dalek city. In the corridors, Daleks are, di- pl- are busy playing dizzy Daleks and saying, why not question? Why? A command, Dal- a command doctor, no, a command Dalek dings a baby Dalek. Baby oh. Daleks ding the command Dalek. And we see bubbling goo aplenty as a Dalek civil war breaks out. So this was very good. Um, I did worry a bit with like how playful and kind of passive the humanized Daleks were going to be. Like the real question is, would they like save a human or would they pull the trigger if they were fired upon? I noticed that they never fired the first shot. They always, like, retaliated. Yeah, they're always acting in self-defense. Yeah. Um, And I thought that was interesting that they established that. Also, I had been counting dings, and it just goes out the window here. Oh, yeah, no. Because there are so many Daleks dying from this point forward. All but one Dalek. Do not even try and keep track. So, yeah, we see plenty of Dalek and Dalek violence uh, the doctor is just there goading the baby Daleks on, saying, you know, defend yourselves. The black Daleks are attacking you. A baby Dalek responds to him, I will obey, but not without question. <laughs> <laughs> and the doctor responds, that's right, question. Destroy the emperor. <laughs> A command Dalek tries to shoot the doctor. But Waterfield knocks him out of the way, saving him, but he ends up getting dinged in the process. Ah, yes. The entirely predictable resolution to his redemption arc. Yeah. I knew it was coming. It. I'm, I'm honestly surprised <sighs> it did not happen sooner because it was being telegraphed from about a mile yeah. away. I know. He's like, I'm going to go help the doctor. You go on without me. Oh, you're dying. Yeah. 
As Waterfield dies, the doctor promises to look after his daughter. Then he sends some baby Daleks to save his friends and others to attack the Emperor. And this next bit was so much chaos, I just wrote, there is no fighting in the Dalek war room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Dalek Emperor catches on fire as multiple baby Daleks shoot him. Daleks explode left and right. Everything Literally, shakes yes. and Scarrow burns. It is very cool. It I don't know madness. if it's like mechanoid uh, levels cool, of cool, but, but, oh, but it man. was it's very hard cool. to it's say. Close. From a bit about how all this was done, uh, a lot of it was done with model shots using Dalek toys as stand-ins. Oh wow! Um, and from what I could tell. Everything was shown in as much gooey, bubbly Dalek detail as we get in the animation. Oh, wow, man. okay. The melting Dalek mutants were made of wallpaper paste dyed green, which oh, wow. was pulsated by the operators. Oh. And uh, they apparently filmed the sequence at four times speed with dry ice and flames, and then Whoa. slowed it down to normal to get the effect that they wanted. Oh, man, that sounds awesome. And uh, the death of the Emperor was shot in complete darkness, illuminated only by its own bulbs and with the explosions that were happening oh. around him. Okay, Fuck. when we saw this, I thought, this is awesome. I'm sure that it sucked. Wrong. <laughs> when it was, but apparently I was wrong. Yeah, oh, it that sounds, sounds amazing. Super cool. Oh, now I'm disappointed. I was fine. <laughs> I was fine with it. Damn. Outside the city, Dalek Maxtable catches up with the humans and begins to chant, "Kill, kill, 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 kill." <laughs> this, this was obviously Shawnee's favorite part of the episode. Kill. I, I have tell. been in my mind just walking around my apartment every once in a while. I just start chanting, kill, 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 kill. And this was a very high low moment for me because like I went from uproarious laughter. Yes. Like shaking at his at his kill, litany. kill, 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 kill. And then, of course. Extreme yeah. sadness because he throws Kemmel off a cliff to his He somehow death. overpowers the biggest man in the series to date. It's Dalek power, I guess. And He's a Dalek now. It's the evil of the Daleks. It's the power of the Daleks. Oh, yeah. I was super pissed. So unceremonious, unending. Hey, you live by the throw people off a cliff, and you <laughs> die by the throw people <laughs> off a cliff. <laughs> Don't hate the cliff player. <laughs> hate the, <laughs> cliff. the cliff game. So Delectable goes after the other two, but then all Daleks are ordered back to the control room, and he, of course, obeys. But not before exclaiming, the Daleks will live and rule forever. There are more explosions as the Doctor rejoins Jamie and Victoria, and Victoria learns about her father. As they head into the TARDIS... The doctor says, well, I think we've seen the end of the Daleks forever. The final <laughs> end. In the city, a light comes on in the casing of a single Dalek, and the story ends, as does season four. Next, we'll have our season four wrap-up, and then we move on to the tomb of the Dal uh, the Cybermen. <laughs> oh, 
Our God. first completely intact Patrick Chowden story. Oh, nice. Okay. I, Shawnee? Yeah. I am convinced Whew. that this is like one of the only Doctor Who episode anythings that I've seen a portion of. Because I remember at one point you did a primer mm-hmm. and I could only stay for one episode and the I'm pretty sure it was called the Tomb of the Cybermen. Yeah, it was, and yes, you did. You were there for the to- for at least a part of the Tomb of the Cybermen. I am uh, excited to see how it concludes, <laughs> <laughs> which I have never seen. So, I'm, ex- I'm the one in the dark this time. So, uh, that is it for the Evil of the Daleks. Let's move what on. A ride. Let's move on to our reactions. A thumbs up, a thumbs down, or a meh. And um, which one of you wants to go first? Oh, I'll go first. All right. We'll let Andy I go, for it. go for go it. first. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I can't. A uh, thumbs up, right? Like, there's no question. I, I, I complain about, like, all the pacing. Not the pacing. I complain about all the, like, weird shit that they just, like, left on the floor. Uh, but it's only out of disappointment, honestly. Like, it's just, like... I, I'm I'm sure... In, I think in the past I've called episodes, like, a fever dream. But, like, this one takes <laughs> cake. It's just all over the place. Yeah. Like, we've got mind control, time travel. We've got, you know, potential paradoxes. S- fucking steampunk, I guess. Yeah. Like alchemy mind control hobo with a whacking stick dis- weird bizarre like disney moments you know going to like going from 1960s to 1800s to scaro to daleks blow blowing up all over the place getting clotheslined into into the fireplace pushed off of cliffs we've got Jamie and Camel's House of Horrors buddy <laughs> film Tango and Cash like <laughs> this episode I mean this serial rate I uh, I I mean just clapping and like stunned like and and then the the finale was spec I mean just spectacle right yeah it's pure spectacle uh shit like. <laughs> That's all I got. I mean, it's thumbs up, man. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Bay, how about you? Um, yeah, this one's a an easy thumbs up. There were problems. We've already talked about them. Pacing's off. It's spaghetti. Like, they threw absolutely everything at the wall to see what sticks. Most of it does. Like, they didn't even care. They didn't even care. <laughs> well, it, like, it's got all of the best elements of any... Uh, Dalek serial. Um, it, it includes like wacky hijinks. It's got Daleks being adorable. Yeah. It's got them being funny. It's got them being super evil and menacing. And it's got them blowing up. What more do you want? This, uh, this is probably my favorite of all of the Dalek stories that we've gotten. And Dalek stories are probably the best of all Doctor Who stories. So this might be the best serial that we've had so far, despite its issues in the beginning. It it, it builds rather slowly, and I think the middle is like a low point, frankly. But like 
when we get to the climax, it's friggin' worth it. Yeah, it's nuts. <laughs> Are you not entertained? Right? It's like... <laughs> yeah, it's a absolute uh, thumbs up. Like, the, the story is nuts. It's crazy. It's nonsensical. There's so much weirdness going on here but it's also an absolute epic masterpiece where you know we're traveling to multiple different places and times and spending you know at least several episodes in each which you know we had that sort of thing in say the chase or the Dalek master plan before but those didn't really come to get like that didn't really seem to form the same story so much as just a couple of different, you know, hey, we stopped here for an episode type things. So, yeah, no, this episode, this story is great. That's all that could be said about it. It's an absolute thumbs up from me. I, I'm really eager to hear what the public thought and what the uh, what the pros <laughs> <laughs> think. So, our viewing numbers were... Actually pretty bad, especially for a Dalek story. Um, Like, the first episode was at an 8.1, but at some point in the middle, it dipped all the way down to 5.1 million. To what extent was this publicized as a Dalek story? I mean, it was called The Evil of the Daleks. Okay. But I think by this time, it was probably just, you know, time for them to retire for a while. Um, because overall... They've been dipping. Yeah, they've been dipping. And this season has been pretty, you know, stable all along. But here, this, you know, this Dalek story didn't do as well as some of the non-Dalek stories this season. So, yeah, probably a good idea for them to be retired for a bit. Did the, did the numbers grow or fall during this serial? It was kind of a U shape. I mean, it it uh-huh. went started at eight point one and did at like six point eight. Other reactions at the time, uh, Patrick Trouden had a ton of fun filming this story, and in the eighties he suggested that they should remake it as a film. Fraser yeah. Hines points to this one and says that this is the story of his that he'd most like to see found. Uh, Deborah Watling remembered it fondly, though she said that the Dalek operators would prank her on set by using their plungers on her in, quote, rude ways when her (laughs) back was turned. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Our good friend Jeremy Bentham, Doctor Who superfan, said, Every so often, a Doctor Who story comes along which is universally recognized as a classic of its kind. This is such a show. Yeah. Yep. Our reviews that we have, the Discontinuity Guide said, a grandiose production which papers over its scientifically implausible aspects with a confident (laughs) swagger. (laughs) Yeah. A 2008 Radio Times review says, the story boasts an intriguing mystery well-drawn characters, an atmospheric setting, and thrilling set pieces, though its plot is overly elaborate. (laughs) Yeah. Elizabeth Sandifer has some nice quotes here. This story walks the thin line between a suspenseful pace and a slow one. Uh, The explanation of the time machine 
makes no sense whatsoever <sighs> in any context that can be recognized as reality, though it does make sense in the context of alchemy. And then she goes on to like explain the principles of alchemy for like five pages. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, she, oh boy. <laughs> She notes that this is basically Doctor Who inventing steampunk. Oh, okay. Oh, I like that. And, um, yeah, she says that the middle consists of three episodes of Jamie running around with a racist caricature of a black Turk with an underdeveloped mind. Though I'm not sure which one of them has the underdeveloped mind. Uh, she says, no explanation of this story prepares you for how completely and utterly bonkers the human Daleks sound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on David Whitaker himself, she says that he is the most important writer the show has ever seen. Hmm. Wow. I am inclined to agree. At least if you can, when you consider laying foundations, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I am inclined to agree. The About Time books um, say opinions were always high, even if there was padding in the middle. Then episode two showed up and opinions only got higher. This is perhaps the most ambitious story that we've seen so far. Its biggest flaw is that it's clearly a six-parter stretched out into seven. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, Goku's still trying to get to Namek. Yeah. <laughs> and they say that the constant escalation of scale makes us keep caring, regardless of the plot inconsistencies. <laughs> yeah. Our poll numbers. Now, while this one that I'm going to mention is not one of the polls that we refer to on this podcast, there was a 1993 poll, and in that one, this one came in at number one. Hmm. Wow. In our 2008 poll, this was number 18, yeah. which is our highest number on that poll so far. And in 2013, this one was number 34, which is our second highest after Power the Daleks. So, yeah, this is one of our top ranked stories so far. It makes me really excited for, like, <laughs> the ones that that were ranked even higher than <laughs> it, because I I really enjoyed this one. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, like there are obviously so many stories which are going to be ranked lower, right? Yeah. But, um... <laughs> so, yeah, um, our impact or things that come after it, uh, by the end of the season, Fraser Hines was firmly established as the series heartthrob breakout star. He even recorded a pop song called The Time Traveler, though it rightfully went unreleased for many years because I listened to it yesterday, and it is dreadful. <laughs> it's like a party all the time by Eddie Murphy scenario, or The Return of Bruno by Bruce Willis or something like that. Those things are like... The friggin' Citizen Kane of music <laughs> compared to the Time Traveler. Oh, boy. As noted, this is Jerry Davis's last story as script editor, though he would be a credited writer on the next story and on another story in the mid-'70s. Uh, Davis would do some more work in Britain and Hollywood, the most notable being he created the show Doomwatch with Kit Peddler, 
and he co-wrote the 1980 time travel movie, The Final Countdown. I'm really nervous now because last time I expressed enthusiasm, we watched friggin' Zed Cars. <laughs> I got, no, I gotta watch, is, does Doom Patrol survive at all? Doom Watch? <laughs> I, I'm, Doom I, I have to check and see. I, I'm yeah, not I sure, it. but... Davis would write several sci-fi novels, including some with Kit Peddler. <laughs> He'd teach screenwriting for a time at UCLA. In 1989, he and Terry Nation made a bid to take over production for Doctor Who and retool it for an American audience, but nothing ever came of that. Hmm. Oh, Okay. And uh, Davis would die at age 61 in 1991. Uh, I was unable to find out how, so sorry to anyone out there who likes to follow along with my morbid death watch. I feel I have failed you. Uh, This is the last Dalek story for quite a while. I won't say how long, but when we see them again, the show will will be in color. Whoa. Oh my gosh. (laughs) After the fifth season, this serial was shown again as a repeat. Aside from the first, the very first episode of Doctor Who, this is the only serial that was repeated during the 1960s. Wow. In 1993, this was the very last serial that was novelized under the original novelization license. Five additional stories would be novelized, but not until the 2010s. Hmm. There is also apparently a stage version of this story that was produced in 2006. So that would be interesting. I don't know if it would be good, but it would be interesting. Have there been many stage versions? Yeah, I don't know if they've done stage versions of stories, but they have done stage... By this point, even, I think they've done some stage Doctor Who's. I think William Hartnell might have done a stage Doctor Who after he left the show, but I might be wrong on that. I know he did some stage work. I don't know if any of it was a Doctor Who. Mm. Uh, But, yeah, that's it. Next time, as I said, we'll be doing our season four wrap-up. And um, then we'll move on to season five and Tomb of the Cybermen. And we'll get to see an actual, you know, fully motion story. Exciting. So please, you know, get in contact with us on Twitter at Doctor Who's That. Send us email at that at gmail.com. Join our Facebook group. Subscribe, rate, share, let people know we exist. But yeah, that's all that I've got with this. So guys, say your goodbyes. Team Kemmel forever, man. Oh yeah, man. And uh, when I say run, run. Kill, 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 kill. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everybody. (laughs) Thanks, Lena.